Hey, how's it going? This is Evan Jackson, video production director of New Life Church. Thank you so much for joining us for our podcast today. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired today. Enjoy the message. All right, let's jump into today's today's study. Today, um, we are, I think it's the sixth or seventh, sixth week of our series on the heroes of the faith. And... Uh, I hope this has been a blessing to you. It has been to me. And let's get to the top of my notes. Yeah, week six. And today we're going to be focusing on the hero that is Ruth. Okay? Ruth. In the Bible, if you turn to the book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges. And that's going to be important in what we talk about today, that it comes right after the book of Judges. So start moving yourself to there. It's towards the front of your Bible. Go to the center, take a left, keep going until you hit Ruth. Okay. The big idea for today's message is this. The book of Ruth guides us in how we can find rest for our souls in a world that continually champions a counter-narrative to biblical truth. That's a mouthful. I'm going to leave it up there on the wall for a second so you can, you can get it. Okay. Continually champions a counter-narrative to biblical truth. That's not new. This has been going on forever. Don't be surprised when your worldview is challenged as a Christian. In fact, the Gospels say, count it all joy. Is that the Gospels? Anyway, New Testament. So, if you're at Ruth, chapter 1, turn one page to the left. Go back into Judges, one page. Judges 21, 25 says this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. In the days of the Judges... Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Ruth opens by describing a family living during the days of the judges that the judges ruled. So when you, when it says that, you have to go right back to that verse that ends the book of Judges and say, "Oh, this is the time she, they're talking about." Ruth happens when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The time of the judges was described as a, a time of inconsistency and the fact that they were doing what was right in their own eyes is a concept around the philosophy of humanism. Okay, Let me just read the definition of humanism. A doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests and values. We do what we think we want to do. What we think is right. That's the concept of the judges. Sound familiar? We could even take it to the next H, from humanism to hedonism. The ethical theory that satisfaction of desire is the highest good and proper aim for human life. Are we not living in that culture right now? And be like, Pastor, this is horrible. We're living in that culture. I just want to tell you something. I want to let you in on a little secret. 
there's nothing new under the sun. This is what humans do. Don't be shocked by it. Be ready for it. What? People want to do what they want to do? That's what? You do too. You do too. The difference is, in our culture, we're, 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 we're told that that's the highest good. Whereas in Scripture, we're, not, we're told that something else is higher and better. So that's what we, uh, this is the climate which we kind of move into. The book of Leviticus comes to life in the pages of the book of Ruth. With its components of social consciousness, such as leaving part of the harvest for the needy, Concern and compassion for the underprivileged within the society. And redemption of property and progeny. The redemption of property and progeny. Okay? The complexities of the Levitical law fade away in the simple message of a divine plan fulfilling, fulfilling itself through decent people. A divine plan fulfilling itself through decent people. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz all occupy the stage in turn, and God's purpose is fulfilled through their actions. It is a love story. I think it's so interesting, I did not plan it this way, that Ruth falls on the day before Valentine's Day. And there's so many things I could do to ruin your Valentine's Day with this story. Because we have totally made it into, like, a romance novel. So I'm not going to go there today. I don't want to ruin your fun. But I am going to show you some things that are interesting. It is a love story, but not the love story that you might expect. In fact, the main players in this drama are a motley crew at best. Ruth is a Moabite. Naomi is an embittered Israelite. Boaz is a wealthy landowner who's better suited in age to Naomi than Ruth. It's questionable how much romance, if any, was part of this love story. And this is going to seem weird to you, but this is actually a love story for God's law. That's boring. Really? A love story to the law? That's not steamy. Well, not really. But it is a love story to the law. The story about how God loved his people so much that he set up boundaries for their benefit. Boundaries for their benefit. It's a reawakening to the love that God has for his people. It's a call for people to stop doing what seems right in their own eyes and return to what is right in God's eyes. Or in other words, what's right? Right? It's not like there's two equal ways to do this. What's right in our eyes and what's right in God's. No, there's what's right in our eyes and then there's just right. You don't get to argue. 
You don't get to argue with God. He's God. I mean, you can have those moments David did in the Psalms, but at the end of the day, he's God. So turn to Ruth chapter 1 and then take a quick left because I want to start with the Judges uh, verse at the end here because it's so important in informing the book of Ruth. It says this, and we're going to read the first chapter of Ruth together. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was, seemed right in his own eyes. During the time of the judges, there was a, a famine in the land, and a man left Bethlehem in Judea with his wife and his two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. This was not supposed to happen. You were not supposed to leave the promised land to go to a pagan land. Work it out. He did it anyway. He did what was right in his own eyes. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of the two sons were Mahalan and Chilion. I tell you, man, these names. You want to resurrect some good names? Call your kid Chilion. His nickname would be Chill. What's up, Chill? What's up? They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons, which is okay. In that culture, you could get, as long as you had a couple sons born to you, you could, as a woman, you could get along if your husband passed. Well, she's okay for now. Her sons took Moabite women. Again, not supposed to do that according to Jewish law. In their, uh, to be their wives. One was named Orpha. Call your kid Orpha, I dare you. And the second was Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Mahalan and Chilion also died. Now we're, now we're in trouble. Not only does she not have any sons, but she's left with pagan daughter-in-laws. That's not going to go well as far as your uh, livelihood. It's a de- it actually is a, it sounds like kind of a, not, a nothing burger, but it's actually a desperate situation. Women did not have the same abilities, didn't have the same, I shouldn't say abilities, the, uh, opportunities, the same rights. We, when we look at it from a 21st century, we've we, we got to be careful because it's, it's completely different culture. They were destitute in this. It, she, this, is a, this is a desperate situation. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had played, uh, paid attention to the people's needs and provided them food. She left the place where she had been living according uh, uh accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, 
Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was uh, still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them so they grew up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share. Because the Lord hand, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again they wept aloud, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. So we have this. Now, all of this dialogue, to us it may seem like waste of ink. Like, why is she telling them all about whether I could have a son or a new husband? Or here's the deal. This is all practical law. This is all practical Leviticus, okay? This is all talking about how a person was to be um, saved from destitution via childbirth. If you had a, a son who had a wife that didn't have children and the son died, it was the responsibility of the brother or brother-in-law to marry that wife and have children in the name of the dead brother. This is all law. And all of it was for the purpose of continuing the line and taking care of the family. And she's saying, my situation is so bitter that not only has my husband and my two sons died, I have no heirs to continue my line and to take care of me. I am ab-, she's basically saying, I am abandoned by God. Everything in the law that would have provided for me is it's gone. God has abandoned me. My life is bitter. So, that's where poor Ruth sits. I mean, so Naomi sits. So, verse 14. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law is gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me And do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? I feel like the rumor mill. Nothing really interesting happens in Bethlehem these days. Oh, Naomi's here. Mm. Let's talk about it while we're making bread. I don't know what they did. Could this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me 
and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So this is the opening to this amazing story. And it's all based in this law juxtaposition with the book, the book of Judges. You have the Levitical law up against the last verse of the book of Judges that says they did what they wanted to do. And we see this happening in the life of Elimelech. He did some things that he wasn't supposed to. Um, Holland and Chilean did things that they weren't supposed to. They did what was right in their own eyes. And their actions left Naomi embittered. Now, the early rabbis believed that Ruth was converted to Judaism when she married her husband, Mahalan. And he probably, at that point, changed her name to Ruth, which means friend or companion. Okay, he probably changed her name from the Moabite name to Ruth. But it's not until uh, Naomi leaves to go back to Israel that her conversion becomes personal and she truly lives up to her namesake. 16 says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She makes a full-on confession of faith. She devotes herself to her mother-in-law, to her mother-in-law's people, and to her mother-in-law's God. From that point on, from that point on, God begins to change Naomi's name from Mara, which means bitter, back to Naomi, which means pleasant. Pleasant. Ruth 2, 1 through 12. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth, the Moabitess, asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you, they replied. Boaz asked his servants, who was in charge of the harvesters? Uh, Excuse me, his servant who was in charge of the harvesters. Who was the young woman? And the servants answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning except that she rested a little in a shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen to me, daughter. Don't go gathering grain in other fields, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which uh, field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I'm a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. 
how you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive full rewards from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you've come for refuge. You cannot read the book of Ruth without fully grasping the concept of the Redeemer. Now, the word Redeemer in the Hebrew is goel, and it's pronounced goal, which I think is interesting, because the goal is to be a Redeemer. That's our job. Not that we can redeem anybody, but our job is to present people with the Redeemer. So the goal is a Redeemer. In modern culture, the closest we can come to the concept of goal or goel is debt forgiveness. For example, if a college graduate who has student loans participates in a special teaching program, their loans are forgiven and they're no longer in debt. But the biblical concept, as we will see, is much bigger than that. Now, Naomi sees the righteousness of Boaz and recommends that Ruth present herself to Boaz as a potential Redeemer. Again, this is all going back to Levitical law precedent. And it's, and it's a big deal. Because in order for this to happen now, people are going to have to do things that go against their own self-interests. They're going to have to obey a higher law than their own self-preservation. In order for things to happen correctly here, they can't do what seems right in their own eyes. They have to do what seems right in God's eyes, or in other words, what is right. Okay? Now, what makes Boaz an ideal goal? Goel. What makes him ideal for this situation? Not his wealth. Definitely not his age. It's his obvious respect for God's law, his care for people above his own property. Why is it mentioned here that he says to his men, may the Lord be with you, and they say, may the Lord be with you. Why is that even in there? I'll tell you why. I don't know, but I think I know. His workers respected him. He respected them. There was a relationship there. There was a bond between worker and and boss, landowner. There was a respect for the law. He was a good man who didn't just do the minimum or didn't do what was right in his own eyes. He did what was best for people, and they respected him for it. So Ruth goes to Boaz and presents herself to him. Now, there's a whole story here, and it's all based in cultural relevance that we don't understand. Naomi says, Ruth, I need you to do something for me. Boaz is the kind of guy that, that may be a, a good redeemer for us. I need you to go, and I need you to go lay at his feet and uncover his feet while he's sleeping. Now, why would you do that? Well, I actually think it's because when my feet get cold at night, I wake up. I can't stand cold feet. Maybe Boaz had the same problem. But the whole point is to present herself to him in a respectful way for a purpose. So let's 
Let's talk about it a little bit. That night, per her mother-in-law's instructions, she goes to the threshing floor at night following a guys-only harvest party. They had a guys-only harvest party, and, and some of them, including Boaz, was a little, a little tipsy. She lays down at his feet, which shows trust, because she has to trust that he's going to be honorable to her. And it shows respect. When Boaz wakes, he is presented with a life-altering choice. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Ruth addresses Boaz. I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Remember Boaz had made the comment that she came and rested under God's wings? And now she's saying to him, you may very well be the instrument of God's protection for us. You've got to understand that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. When people do and live and act in a way that is greater than their own interests, that doesn't put their own thoughts and their own desires and their own uh, principles or values above God, he can use that person to bless other people. It's not just prudish. It's prudent. So she says, you might be the one God wants to use. Then he said, verse 10, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men with rich, whether rich or poor. Now, why? to whom? Who is she showing more kindness to? The, the natural thought is to think she's showing kindness to him. Thanks for coming to me. I'm a little on the older side. You're showing a lot of kindness to me. That's not who he's showing. That's not who he's talking about. He is saying this. You have shown more kindness to your mother-in-law because you didn't just go off on your own and find some guy to marry. You, 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 you came to me because you knew I could be the redeemer, not only of you, but of Naomi's whole family. Your quality, she basically, he's basically saying this, your quality has been proven. Your quality has been proven. Not only have I heard about it, now I have seen it. Verse 11. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer to, than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. You see how it all has to do with the procedures of the law. The Old Testament concept of goel, or redeemer, is deeper and more radical than just debt forgiveness. It is a brother-in-law or a brother who can legally bring back the name of the dead relative through land acquisition and children forfeiting his own inheritance rights in order to continue the line of the dead. Now, in, in chapter 4, which I'm not going to read, I'm just going to summarize for you, there's this really, again, culturally specific thing that happens. 
Boaz goes to the city gates, which is where all the leaders sit, the, the, the judges and everything, and he says, hey, you over there, come, on, come talk to me. We need to talk. There, uh, Naomi is here. She has this property, and she wants to have it redeemed. You, are, you have first, first crack at it, and he's like, yes, let's do this. Let's bring, because if there is no heir, if there is no heir, and he's the closest kingsman, he gets to keep it. So then Boaz says, oh, by the way, one last thing. The day you take possession of land, you also take possession of Ruth, the Moabitess. And you have to fulfill your law obligations of giving her an heir, which will split your inheritance in half. Whoa, hold on, what? What? No, I already have an heir. All of my worldly possessions will go to my family, and he will get the whole thing. I am not going to sacrifice my, my livelihood for some no-name that I don't care about who's dead. So he said, you, Boaz, you do it. <laughs> and Boaz says, okay. No, he goes, absolutely. So in this, this practice of obeying the law, Boaz loses. He loses. He loses half of his, his, his own property, and he loses the name to the new property. It goes to Elimelech's family. So in doing what God has asked him to do, he has to give up something of his own. He has to go against his own interests to obey God. Now what's interesting is this. The word, there's one word that characterized, is characterized in the book of Ruth. And it's, that, it's this word rest. Rest. In the context of the book, rest is found when the principal characters adhere to the dictates of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you really find joy in obedience? Can there be rest in restriction? Can we find peace in denial? Can we find purpose outside of our own self-interest? Is it just possible that God's way is better than our way? Just, just possible. Is it possible? Well, I don't feel like that. That doesn't feel right to me. Okay. What is that, what, honestly, what does that have to do with it? My sinful nature feels a lot of things that would not be good for it to follow through on. Right? So what do our feelings really have to do with it? Is it just possible that there's a better way? That he knows better than us? Just possibly? And when we give ourselves over to his purpose and his plan, we find rest. Matthew 11, 19, uh, excuse me, Matthew 11, 
29 says, accept my teachings and learn from me. I am gentle and free of pride. You will find rest for your soul. Accept my teachings and learn from me. I am gentle and free of pride. He's not doing it for his own edification and elevation. He doesn't need to. Guess what? He's God. He restricts. He gives boundaries. He gives rules for our benefit. You will find rest for your soul. How do you find rest in Jesus? We give ourselves away. In Ruth 4.1, the first redeemer, the no-name guy that I was just talking about, if you look in your Bible, the Bible never gives him a name. There's names all through this, if you understand. Ruth's name, Naomi's name, they all have meanings, right? Well, this other redeemer that had the potential of redeeming Ruth, his... Uh, He's, he's talked about as Palani Elmani. You know what that means? No-name guy. It literally means such and such in the Hebrew. That's what it means. That guy. So-and-so. We would probably say, so and, uh, who was so-and-so? So-and-so came over and, and I, so, you know. He, he tries to preserve his own estate in Ruth 4, 6, but become, uh, because he put himself first, he is not remembered by the scriptures or in the genealogy of Christ. Ruth and Boaz, in contrast, are honored by God and their acts are preserved and celebrated in scripture. How many here would love to give up something and find that they're, the thing they gave up caused God to go. Is there anything we'd want to hold on to more than the gratification of our God? Good job. You went against your sinful nature and you gave up something that you want, but I want it. I need it. Do you? In fact, most of the things that we want in the flesh will probably put us in debt. But I need it now. Really? Yeah. And MasterCard says I can have it. They, they said it's okay. And Visa's like, I'll help you out too. I can have what I want now. Yeah, you can. You can. You absolutely can. But I, but I need this gratification in this relationship now. What do you mean? Now? You mean outside of God's plan, which is in marriage? You hear me? Sometimes we give things up just because we know God would be pleased by it. We don't do things because it's right in our own eyes. That's the juxtaposition between the book of 
Judges, and the book of Ruth. This is, uh, this is the essence of Matthew 6, 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for me will find it. Oh, pastor, you're just so, you're so legalistic. Maybe. I don't know. I think the proper word would be obedient. And I fail every day at it. We do, right? We fail. Well, no, one's, no one in here is saying, <laughs> well, I hope you're not. I'm not saying, <laughs> I do this perfect. No, I've done plenty of things that are right in my own eyes. My goal is not legalism. It's not I just, my, my goal is to be obedient to God's way. I feel like he has res, the, the right and the responsibility to, to tell the things that he created, how he created them, and how they're going to thrive. And I'm going to give myself over to I, The manual, I know guys don't like to read the manual. Anybody, any guys in here ever put something together and like, Wait a minute. I think I missed step four. And now this thing is like not working right. I'm the only one that's done that? Liars. The girls are like, let's get the manual out. Let's do everything. And let's make little X's when we finish it. Lord, I thank you for this time we can be together. God, this is one of the hardest things for human beings to do. And that is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow Christ. The fact that you put it in that term means it's not going to be easy. It's going to be literally like carrying, sometimes it's going to feel like carrying our own implement of torture to do the thing that you called us to. But when we live a life in that place, We find rest for our souls. We find redemption. And Lord, you are the ultimate kinsman redeemer. The one who gave up his possessions, his ability to be, he came from heaven, denied himself what was rightfully his to attain, and gave it up, suffered, died on my behalf so that I might be redeemed. Man. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer and he is the ultimate goal. Lord, help Jesus to be my example, my goal and how I treat people. Lord, help us never to be dogmatic in our our belief system so that we alienate those who are not there yet. May our lives exemplify a life of faithfulness and obedience. Lord, I pray right now that you would give my brothers and my sisters through the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to put you first in the things that they do in this life. Not to only do what is right in their own to strive to do what's right 
according to your law, your way. We can't, we can't do this on our own, God. Give us your Holy Spirit to empower us. In Jesus' name. This week, 